Hey, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And before we start the show, we'd like to bring your attention to some cool conferences happening around the world. Specifically, NDC Sydney, happening August 14th through the 18th in Sydney, Australia. Now, I personally can't make it to Sydney this year, but you're going, right, Richard? Absolutely, I'm going, you know, because Sydney. Uh, yeah, Awesome. I wish I could go. So go to NDCSydney.com and register now. Save some money and register before April 30th for early bird pricing. And for more great NDC conferences, go to NDCconferences.com. Right. Hey, welcome back. It's Carl and Richard. We're geeking out. What's up, buddy? Doing the thing with the stuff, my friend. It's springtime, which means it's only snowing a little. You know how I know it's springtime? Because oh. there's three inches of snow on the ground. That's how I know <laughs> it's springtime. I think we both sound pretty bitter. I'm a little bitter. We're within a couple of weeks of the spring solstice. I know, it's crazy. Come on! We've already gone to daylight savings time, and uh, now we're just waiting for the weather to catch up with civilization. Yeah, it very sucks. interesting, isn't it? Ah. I have been avoiding doing the climate change geek out, but it's getting harder. It is getting harder, isn't it? Yeah. Well, let's get started with Better Know Framework. Awesome. Hey, man, what do you got? You know, every once in a while, I see these data generators for databases or, or apps yep. that just generate some fake data. A very necessary part of, you know, building software. Yeah. There's a, a very famous one called faker.js but this one is a, a c-sharp fake data generator this is bogus <laughs> <laughs> oh no i'm serious that's the name of it bogus and this is bogus. from b chavez it's on github a simple insane fake data generator for c-sharp based on <laughs> and ported from the famed faker.js that's awesome necessary evil that, yep. You know, you can waste a lot of time trying to make good fake data. So it's good to use a tool that's already there. So shout out to Brian Chavez for doing that. It looks pretty cool. You can install it with NuGet. It's just bogus installed. It's <laughs> great. Install dash package space bogus. I installed bogus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's just fun. Awesome. You know, and the readme in the GitHub repository says it all. So just go there and check it out. Get bogus. Tell him Carl and Richard sent you. <laughs> <laughs> Who's talking to us, man? Uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1403. That's the geek out we did in January about space in 2017. Right. And all the cool things that were coming up, some of which we get to talk about again today because they've come further along. Yeah. And I love this comment from Polly Hancock, who said, I listened in something like awe to your rundown of all the developments in spaceflight. Mm -hmm. And after a while, something bugged me. These gizmos seem to make a lot of use of liquid helium. How does that work in the long run? I mean, huh. you can't make helium and there's nowhere we can go to get more when we run out. Mm. Then mm. what? With that in mind, it's my 60th birthday next month. Happy birthday, Polly. Yeah. And my instructions are, flowers are cool, but please, no balloons. <laughs> Polly, thanks so much for your comment. First and foremost, you absolutely can make helium. Uh, you can do fusion and fuse two hydrogen atoms together and you will get a helium atom. But the usual way to make helium is with colliders where they break lithium apart into helium atoms. It's just expensive. Mm -hmm. the, you know, and... While rockets consume some helium, they don't consume a lot. The The only place where he liquid helium is used, actually, is to pressurize the fuel tank 
of the RP-1 tanks. So in the, we were talking about helium in the context of the Falcon 9 because they've had a number of problems with their helium tanks. The two failures that have occurred in the Falcon 9 rocket were both due to issues with their liquid helium tanks. And the reason they use liquid helium in the RP-1 tank is that it's not self-pressurizing. Because RP-1 is a liquid mm -hmm. rather than a gas, it needs to, we need, they need to pump helium into it to keep the tank properly pressurized. In the case of the liquid oxygen, they don't need to do that. Because liquid oxygen, in order to use it, they have to turn it back into a gas. They can bleed a little bit of that gas back into the liquid oxygen tank to keep it pressurized. Yeah. When SpaceX moves to the Raptor design, the, to, the, to the methane engine design, methane has that same characteristic. And so does hydrogen, for that matter. So this is really specifically for RP-1 fuel tanks that you need helium for pressurization. There's a couple other places okay. where you can use pressurization. And the reason they use helium is that you can densify it really well. Otherwise, it's kind of a pain in the butt. So it, yeah, if you really want to be worried about helium consumption, worry about things like MRI machines, because MRI machines use superconductive magnets that need to be cooled in liquid helium. Right. And that's a quite a bit more. Also, the Large Hadron Collider, which I think is the single largest consumer of helium with literally thousands of tons of it, although they keep recycling it, they don't let it get away. Mm. But there was a big story a couple of years ago about us running out of helium, quote mm. unquote. Mm. And uh, that's not really true. That was really sort of news for the purposes of raising the price of helium because the primary helium producers were running low. So helium does show up in certain kinds of mining beds, and that tends to be the least expensive helium, although you actually get quite a bit of helium as a byproduct of natural gas extraction. So not long after the news sort of talked about, oh, we're running out of helium, there was suddenly a lot more helium around because... There's been a lot more natural gas extraction with all the fracking and, and other gas extraction methods going on. So they're capturing that helium and being able to sell it. Okay. And then just to top that off, in 2016, some mining companies in Tanzania, of all places, found a particular kind of gas deposit that is very high in helium. It's going to take a few years for it to bring it, be brought online, but there'll be a lot more helium. And they have an incentive to do that because that urgency that caused a few years ago has raised the price of helium. So I'm not too concerned about us running out of helium anytime soon. Uh, as with all materials on this planet, we will eventually consume it all. I just think that's measured in centuries not decades. Okay. Uh, and uh, helium is no exception. Well, I'm going to have to take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. I've spent more time thinking and, and reading about helium than normal people should. That's, that's right. true. But that's true of all these geek outs, isn't it? For your edutainment. There you go. <laughs> so, Polly, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We chill him in liquid helium. <laughs> Did I get that right? Helium's, it's hard to make, man. That's not easy to do. So we Just have, saying, we like your tweets that much. Right. And we have a special stash. That It's a Canadian stash of liquid helium. There you go. Yeah. Too funny. All right, so so where do we start with moon base? And um, are you talking about a base of humans on the moon somewhere? Why, yes, yes, I am. 
Not that it exists right now, just that we should build one. But isn't it funny how much the moon's been in the news lately? Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's reminiscence of the Cold War, you know, because that was the yes. sort of target of Cold War. Uh, the symbol of Cold War dominance was who could get to the moon. Yeah, well, and, and let's definitely talk about the Apollo mission. But I, I would also note that the Obama administration was not interested in the moon at all. And that sort of drove the focus on Mars. And if you look at our geekettes, we've been talking a lot about Mars. Right. But since the administration has changed, there's more energy around uh, the moon conversation again. I think it's one of the reasons we're just hearing more about it. I always thought it was a good idea to have something on the moon. In, in other words, you know, it's a it's a place where we can go in space that's not far away, that has a surface. You know, there yep. there isn't an atmosphere to speak of, but there's a little nope. gravity, and there's and it's rich in minerals, right? Yes. They, you're, you're exactly right. There is a bunch of features. In fact, uh, one scientist was coming to saying, if there is a God and that God wanted us to be a spacefaring race, that God would create something almost exactly like our moon hmm. because it has a lot of interesting ingredients in it that are useful to become a spacefaring race. And there's an overarching theme to a lot of the space shows that we're going to do over the next few months and have done. Okay. It's about how do we become a spacefaring race. Yeah. But I do want to put a couple of the core news stories to bed. I mean, one thing is to be aware, we are coming up on the 50th anniversary of Apollo 8, which is the first time humans went around the moon. That was December of 1968. Okay. And it's one of the reasons that the Trump administration pushed NASA just recently to make the EM-1 mission manned. Mm -hmm. So the, the space launch system, the SLS, is a rocket largely NASA didn't ask for, but Congress continues to fund, mm -hmm. to repurpose shuttle parts, including the booster rockets and the RS-25s, to make a heavy lift vehicle. And then the question has always been, well, what's the actual mission? And that, uh, the Obama administration canceled the Constellation project, which was the SLS, this heavy rocket, plus a lander, a bunch of stuff to go to the moon. Mm. But they continue with the SLS anyway. And the ongoing development of SLS is the first mission to really fly the Orion. So they flew an Orion on the on Delta IV. Yeah. That's the that's the capsule. Right. Unmanned, sent it up and had it re-enter. It was just a simple test, a logical test. You know, there's a process you do to validate hardware. So EM-1 is the first all-up mission of the main booster of the SLS. So this is four RS-25 engines, uh, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen uh, powered with a pair of shuttle boosters, a temporary middle stage, a thing they call the interim cryogenic propulsion stage, hmm. and an unmanned Orion capsule that's supposed to have a bunch of sensors or two dummies in it covered in instrumentation, and they're going to fly it around the moon. Okay. They're actually going to do a, a, the mission's kind of interesting, but they were going to spend quite a bit of time on the moon in a distant retrograde orbit. Uh, and again, just to test the whole system out. All right. And so the administration has asked, could we make that manned? And of course, the timing's ostentatious because that would be around the 50th anniversary of Apollo 8, oh. and it would be either 2018 or 2019. So that's good timing for the next election cycle. You know, yeah, there's a yeah. bunch of ways you can look at this. There's And I now have a problem with more manned missions. I like more manned missions, but this one especially doesn't make sense. The okay. EM-2 mission, the next one after this, is supposed to be manned. And the big distinction between EM-1 and EM-2 is the interim cryogenic propulsion stage. 
So the first stage needs to be tested, and it should probably not be tested with any people on it because it's a brand new rocket and things go wrong. Now, these are just flights, right? They're not landing on the moon. No, this is just flying. They just yeah. want to do an orbit, right? Yeah. But it's a powerful rocket, so you might as well use that Delta V and fly further than low Earth orbit. Oh, okay. Right? It's just it's a powerful rocket. It can mm. do this, right? And if you don't have people on it, it's fine. <laughs> the, the current <laughs> version Famous of the, last words. <laughs> yeah. The, the current version of VM-1, it's not a full Orion capsule. It's a less advanced version of the capsule, so that, and it doesn't have a life support system in it. Okay. They're, right? they, they, they're not really there. Another part of that, to make it manned, it, you obviously you'd have to fix the life support and get a proper Orion capsule going. The ascent abort system, so that's a rocket strapped to the top of the Orion capsule yeah. that's supposed to pull a capsule off in case of disaster, that system's not ready either. Mm. So they'd have to finish developing that. But the biggest issue is this interim cryogenic propulsion stage. So this is a modified Delta IV second stage. So after your big stage has boosted you more or less to orbital height, but not circularized your orbit, yeah. then you fire your second stage to do circularization and all this other good stuff. And then the Delta IV, that's done by this particular five meter wide stage that uses an engine called the RL-10. Okay. It's a fantastic engine. It's been used for years and years and years. Lots of variants and models made uh, made on it. But it's not man-rated, and neither is the tanking system. And, and man-rating really talks about the levels of redundancy that are available, the failure modes that are available, the mature things that it need to make it safe for people to fly on. It, it sets a higher standard. So I guess why we're talking about this is you need a rocket like this, but you need it to be manable. Fully man-rated. And obviously, the first stage is going to be man-rated, and this is one of the, the goals of the EM-1. But the ICPS is a, literally a temporary stage. It's just taking a Delta IV stage so they can do this flight because they're developing a bigger upper stage called the Exploration Upper Stage, or EUS. Well, before we talk about that, what is the purpose of these flights in this rocket anyway? Does it have an end goal? Yeah, it's to test the system out so that they can make a man-rated rocket. Oh, this I would see. be the first flight of the SLS. I see. Which is why there's no people on it. All right. So this is basically just a, a, a test rocket so that we can get to the next level. The same way that we've always done, right? Yeah. This is the normal testing process. This first flight is not is not manned, and it's testing a lighter weight version of the Orion. It's using an interim second stage. Its real main test is to test that first stage. Cool. Then the EM-2 is the test of the upper stage and a full rated version of Orion with people on it. Okay. All right. Got it. And so that was the intent. It's just now there's this, uh, most people are going, well, hell, if you're already flying to the moon, why don't you send some people? And right. I just want to communicate that there's a bunch of pieces missing between EM-1 and EM-2. They're very different missions and mm -hmm. both need to be tested. You're getting to a point now, if you try and load all the stuff on EM-1, A, I don't think you can pull it off. There's just more things that are going to go wrong. And B, the real reason you do missions is to learn new things. They are not going to get the, the exploration upper stage done faster. Yeah. So there's man rating the ICPS, that interim stage, just doesn't make sense because you're never going to use it again. It's a one-timer. Hmm. Hmm. So that's kind of a waste of money, so to speak. I, mean, I don't, I'll be interested to see what NASA can propose because I'm all for going faster. And usually the way to go faster is spend more money. Right. But if they could finish the EUS faster, if they could go to the full Orion faster, which really means if you can do EM2 first instead of bothering with EM1, then fine. But it's risky. You're taking chances with people's lives. Sure. If you provide enough money so they can do it well, okay. 
There's another moon mission that just was in the news, too. Did you read this one about SpaceX has got a, a, a gig to fly to the moon? Yeah, I heard about this. What's going on? So apparently a couple of wealthy people have approached SpaceX saying they want to do an Apollo 8 style mission. They want to fly around the moon huh. and uh, they want and they want to use Falcon Heavy with a man rated version of the Dragon capsule, which they're already working on. And they're paying. They're a paying customer. So wow. there's like there's almost no downside to this mission per se wow. in the sense that SpaceX is basically being hired to do a flight around the moon from a couple of wealthy tourists, so to speak. Hmm. So, um, yeah, why not do it? How much are they going to pay? Well, they, the, the amount hasn't been released. But what's interesting is since 2007, there has been a company offering flights around the moon. Huh. The company's called Space Adventures, and it's actually the service was going to be provided by Roscosmos. That's the Russian space agency. They've been offering a flight around the moon for about 100 It was priced at $100 million in 2007. Yeah. Although... And the, the shape of the mission was interesting. You'd fly up on a Soyuz to the space station. You'd spend 10 days on the space station getting adapted to space. And then a separate uh, rocket, a separate vehicle called the Lunar Module, we've flown to ISS. You board that. It flies around the moon. Mm. And then you come home. Yeah. Wow. So it, interesting that nobody ever took Roscosmos and Space Adventures up on that mission. And yet SpaceX now has a gig. Yeah. So that to me is fascinating. Yeah. So those are, you know, all of a sudden there's all this stuff going on around the moon and it made me sort of dig out my notes on the fact that we've been talking about a base for a long time. Yeah, we have. The main argument against it, and this was even the argument of the Obama administration, was we've been. Right. But it's not, you know, not entirely true. We've got to talk a little bit well, about Apollo. In the well, in, is that a good argument? I mean, the real argument is, is there value in going back to the moon? That is an excellent argument. And yeah. so here are the four things I'm going to talk about over the rest of this hour. We haven't explored the moon all that much. There's a lot more we can learn about it. We can learn to manufacture and extract fuel from the moon as well. Mm -hmm. We need humans to learn about living in low gravity, and I'll mm -hmm. talk about why. And there are unique science opportunities particular to the moon. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Now... Let's go after the first one that we haven't explored it much. He's like, hey, Apollo, you've been there, right? Right. So I think it's important to think of Apollo as for what it actually was, yeah. which was it was a military mission to beat the Soviets to the moon. Yeah, it was we wanted to be there first. Right. Yeah. And it really was to show that our technology was ascendant. And I would also argue not only did it accomplish its job, and it may have accomplished it as of Apollo 8. Once mm -hmm. humans flew around the moon, the Russians basically were like, well, we're not going to beat this. Yeah. It's come out in recent years that the success of the Apollo mission had a bigger impact on the Soviet Union than anybody cares to admit. Hmm. It was sort of a talking point at that point. It said, the Americans are crazy. They will galvanize everything they have to succeed in this kind of insanity. Yeah. And so we should always take them seriously. And the counterpoint to that is, you know, what really ended the Soviet Union was Ronald Reagan's strategic defense initiative. Hmm. When he said, we're going to now build a space program that can shoot down nuclear missiles in flight yeah. so that we're per protected from nuclear war. Mm. The Apollo mission was the way the Soviets pointed to and said, they'll actually going to do that, man. Right. It's not impossible. They went to the moon. They'll do this. We've got to figure out how to compete. Yeah. Didn't Reagan say a nuclear war can be fought and won? 
Didn't he say that? Well, that was the implication, right? I mean, it was always spun as we're going to be protected from nuclear war where nobody else is, which is a very destabilizing thing. Yeah. But, you know, the reason that anybody believed it was that the Americans had gone to the moon. Yeah. Hmm. And admittedly, all of the much of the technology that was developed for that space race ultimately turned into spy satellites and and other useful equipment. Right, right. But the Apollo landings were very restricted in where they could land on the moon. Uh, I I mapped out all of the locations. There's a couple of maps out there. You can find them if you want to look at them. And really, they couldn't, a few, there were a few big rules. One is they always landed in the daytime Mm. and they always landed on the near side. So they waited until the area where they're landing was going to be fully in the day. And and a, a day on the moon actually is 27 and a half days long. Okay. It's roughly 15 days of light, 15 days of dark, especially Hmm. at the equator. It's a very long day because our moon is tidally locked to the earth, which means the same face of the moon always points towards us. The moon does not rotate separately. Got it. Now, the sun moves around, which is why we have gibbous moons and new moons Mm -hmm. and so forth. So for all of the Apollo missions, they always landed on the near side so they could have communications with earth. Yep. And they always landed in full light. Yep. That rest- and that combined with limitations on the lander itself meant they could only land in a relatively small area of the moon. The total area, the, the two missions furthest apart, they were both, rel- all of them were relatively close to the equator, maybe as much as 20 degrees north or south. They use the same coordinate system that we do on Earth, they mm. use on the moon. Mm. It's just that they don't call it geographic coordinates, they call it selenographic coordinates. Okay. But yeah, they never got further north than 26 degrees north, and they never got further south than like nine degrees south. Oh, wow. So the comparison, the two missions furthest apart overall were Apollo 12 and Apollo 17. They're about 1,700 kilometers apart, or about 1,000 miles apart. So imagine if all of the missions you've landed on the Earth are in the Sahara Desert. Right. Got it. The Sahara Desert, by the way, much bigger than that. It is short way than the desert north to south is about 1,800 kilometers. But don't they think there's less diversity of environment on the moon than there is on the Earth? Well, that was always the initial consideration, especially with the data that Apollo brought back. But it turns out they were wrong. Hmm. Because after Apollo, they did send some more missions up. Um, a bunch of them got canceled. There was a, almost immediately after Apollo, they proposed a thing called the Lunar Polar Orbiter. Mm-hmm. They'd really never mapped the whole moon well. Because mm. in order to map it well, you have to fly polar orbits, north to south. Right. And that's a more complicated flight. And they, so they they wanted to start getting measurements of the, the moon in great detail. And they did fly a bunch of missions in advance of Apollo to do this. But they were much more limited technology. But actually, the, one of the very first significant missions to the moon after Apollo didn't come until like the 1990s. Hmm. So related to our fallout on the end of the Cold War, yep. during one of the technologies developed for the Strategic Defense Initiative was this concept called the Brilliant Pebble. Yeah. So these were very small satellites that had great sensors that could then be rammed into nuclear missiles. And a bunch of the technology had actually been built before the Cold War ended. And so while the Cold War ended, they had this tech, they thought, well, we should do something interesting with it. And so, yeah, I can correlate this with a bunch of other things that went on, like the Faster, Cheaper, Better initiative of NASA after they lost the Mars uh, uh, Observer. If you go back and listen to that show, we talked about all the satellites around Mars. 
One of the first missions in that new model, and this is it was a, a mission called Clementine. And the reason it was called Clementine is that they had this cool tech with good sensors and so forth. It's like, let's fly a mission to the moon, and then we'll fly it to an asteroid, and then it'll be gone and lost forever. <laughs> Clement. Clementine. Isn't that sweet? It is. So, I, and I love the the sort of swords into plowshare side of this. You built this thing to fight the Cold War. It helped win the Cold War. And now you turn it into a plow into something that we learn from. And so they sent it up and it was the first time that we detected the possibility of water on the poles of the moon. Right. And that's what changed everything because the Apollo missions came back with, there's no water on the moon. The moon is bone dry because they were landing in deserts, right? They landed in several of them, but all focused around that equatorial area of the moon and so the compositions were pretty limited. It looks like the poles are more interesting places. Yeah, that's right. Than the center. And more missions continued after that. In 95, there was Lunar Prospector, which did more geochemicals. But the best mission of them all is a run called Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So this is only 2009. In fact, it's still in operation today. And it has done the detailed mapping of the moon that we now count on. It also is the thing that imaged all the Apollo landing sites. So if you think back a few years ago, we started seeing grainy pictures of the Apollo landing sites where you could see the tire tracks and the base and, and so forth. Right. That all came from the LRO. But part of the mission of the LRO was the the upper stage that actually boosted LRO to the moon got turned into its own satellite. It was called the L-Cross Impactor for mm. Lunar Crater Observation and Sensing Satellite. What they did was they flew it into one of these shadowed craters on the poles. Uh. So the proposal has been that there are parts on the north and south pole of the moon that are always in shadow, that right. they're always dark, and they're cold traps. And so they've captured water there. Huh. And that's because of mountains and craters, essentially? Yes. Yeah. And what's interesting is that at the same time that there are areas that never get light, there are also areas on the poles that are almost continuously lit because they're very tall. And because there's almost no inclination to the uh, uh, rotation of the moon, they don't. They have light all the time. As much as 90% of the time, they'll have light. So what's the temperature differential between the sunny spots and the dark spots? About 500 degrees. Whoa. It's now, catastrophic. Celsius? Oh, no. It's a, uh, Celsius, Fahrenheit at 500 degrees, it doesn't matter much, buddy, does it? <laughs> yeah, I know, but what are the actual temperatures? Uh, I could, I, I'd have to look up the exact numbers, but you're talking in the negative 200s to the positive 200 wow. Celsius. Wow. So it's, yeah, when you're in direct sunshine, it's quite hot. Yeah. And when you're in complete darkness, it's quite cold. Got it. Although, again, without a lot of atmosphere, it's hard to move heat back and forth. Mm. But. You know, things get weird when you're talking about virtual vacuum. It's true. So the L-Cross impactor, by the way, they, what they did was they they slammed it into one of these craters and then they did spectrographic analysis of the material ejected from the impact. Mm. And 7% of that material was water. Wow. And that's a lot. I do remember that in being yeah. in the news that, you know, water on the moon. Yeah. And, and it was absolutely a huge, huge deal. Yeah. Well, hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep, it's time for Commander Koenig and Helena to grab Alan, Victor, and Maya and steal an Alphan ship to head back to Earth. Holy man, did you do a Space 1999 reference? You better believe I did. The worst <laughs> show ever in sci-fi. Oh, 
Now, come on. My memories of that show are great. But I've gone back and watched a couple of them, and they're terrible. terrible. Yeah, I know. It, it was actually <laughs> praised in its day for being, you know, very showy, a lot of special effects. But they were so bad relative oh, to man, anything bad. that you've seen since. Yeah. Just go back and watch it. Other than the heartbreak of looking at what we thought 1999 would look like with people on the moon, yeah. and here we are in 2017 with nobody on the moon. Well, the storyline of that is kind of interesting. The Earth was uh, depositing nuclear waste on the dark side of the moon, right? and it, it something happened and it exploded, and these guys were on a base, and it shot the moon out of the solar system and out into deep space. So right. while they were on the moon, they were alone. <laughs> yes so suddenly they have this roving thing and it's like a nuclear waste doesn't explode yeah, right. b flying to space is catastrophically stupid and by the way uh, that kind of combustion requires oh i don't know oxygen <laughs> <laughs> don't get detailed with me right. and then really you're gonna encounter anything if you've somehow flung the moon away from the earth yeah you'd ever encounter anything ever that's right yeah. Well, anyway, it's actually time to give away a D experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Peter T. Schantz. Right, you, Peter. I'll clap for you, Peter. sir. Yeah. And Peter just won the D-Experience subscription. That's a big pile of awesome from our friends at Developer Express just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of said fan club. But you got to sign up to win. Awesome. So why is there water on the moon? I mean, I understand ice at the poles, I guess, can form somehow, but what brought it there? Why is there water? And that's a, a phenomenal question because there's no water along the equator, right? That was one of their uh, observations of Apollo right. is these rocks were bone dry. Yeah. So why is there still water on the poles? And And there's been a bunch of ideas proposed. I mean, one is that... It's actually the original materials that, you know, this, the material of the moon, one of the best ideas we have for the moon the impact theory. Uh, formation is the impact theory. Yeah. And arguably Apollo validated that because the chemical composition of the materials on the moon matches the materials on earth. And there was a lot of water in that. Yeah. So it could be original material from the formation of the moon. Right. Also comet meteor impacts yeah. landing in the dark zones the water would stay. There's been lots of impacts all over the moon, but where you get sunlight, that water's going to get destroyed. Yeah. But where it lands in dark zones, they're going to stay. Mm. Uh, but there's one other mode that's really interesting, and it speaks to one of the more challenging aspects of the science of the moon that we still don't understand yet. This is research we can continue to do. Mm. So solar wind is protons, right? It's basically ionized hydrogen. Yeah. 
flying off of the sun and impacting the solar system as a whole. The Earth gets hit with it, but it largely gets concentrated in the Van Allen belts because of our strong magnetic field, and the moon gets peppered with it all the time. Okay. And those particles are moving fast enough that they often combine with things. So one of the great claims to fame of the valuable resource on the moon is helium-3. Well, helium-3 is a byproduct of the solar wind impacting the regolith, the very fine soils of the moon, and combining with it to make this rare isotope of helium, which would be very useful for fusion production. It's in a thin layer scattered across the ah. surface of the planet. But it would also make water. Okay. The composition of regolith, so that fine, dusty powder on the moon's surface, is mostly aluminum oxides and, and silicon oxides. So when those high-speed hydrogen atoms smash into that every so often they're going to pluck that oxygen off and then you're going to have a hydroxide and hydrogen atom and oxygen atom and they don't like being hydroxide so they'll find another hydrogen atom really quickly and boom you've got a water atom okay now here's the weird part and this is something we still don't fully understand but there's plenty of evidence that it's going on as the sun moves across the moon and admittedly does it very slowly it creates a charged energy state across the moon the moon itself is electrically charged. There's a lot of static involved in this. And that electrical conduct, uh, conduction will actually create a field that tends to drive ionized particles to the north and south pole. So there's science behind the idea that not only would hydrogen naturally form into water every so often everywhere on the surface of the moon, mm. but that it would be driven to the poles by the magnetic fields. Oh, okay. And some of it would end up landing in these cold traps, in these dark spots, and accumulate. Wow, that makes sense. So the estimate now is that there, within the first few meters of the surface of the bottoms of these craters is literally millions of tons of ice. Whoa. Not a small amount of ice. Whoa. Now, why is that important? Why is it important? I mean, if there's a source of water on the moon that could sustain life. Yes, we need oxygen to breathe. Hydrogen is useful. It also makes rocket fuel. Yeah. So right off the bat, it's like one of the problems we have right now for being a spacefaring race is we have to bring everything we need from the Earth. And that is takes a lot of energy and effort. It's 12 kilometers a second of delta V to get into the orbit of the Earth. It's only two kilometers a second to get in the orbit of the moon. Mm -hmm. So if you could mine fuel on the moon, hydrogen and oxygen, and easily bring it out of the orbit of the moon to your ship, you can refuel ships there. So you think back to the show we did about SpaceX's mission to go to Mars, right. where they're going to fly one rocket up with the people on it and then a bunch of rockets up to refuel them. Yeah. Wouldn't it make more sense to build that fuel on the moon and fuel it that way? Absolutely. It's cheaper if you can build up the infrastructure. Right. So having water on the moon suddenly makes the moon viable as a place, not only for people to live, but also for us to make a very valuable product, fuel. But it's not the only product we could make there. What about solar energy? Well, interesting you should mention that, my friend. So I've been studying the creation of solar panels a lot. There's a lot of silicon on the moon, right? There is a lot of silicon on the moon, which is the primary ingredient. Mm -hmm. There's also a fair bit of titanium. Mm. Titanium dioxide is the main coating over top of that silicon. Wow. And there is also aluminum. Like most of the ingredients you need to make solar panels exist on the moon. Maybe you could just like plug the dirt into something and extract solar energy from it. Well, you, you know, this is where we get into how would you 
start this whole right. process, yeah. right? And I'm, by the way, I'm not just making this stuff out of, out of the blue. There is a bunch of groups of people that are working hard on this, including the scientific establishment. In, in 2014, a group of U.S. scientists got together, producing ultimately nine papers hmm. uh, to build a base not entirely unlike Antarctica on the North Pole for up to 10 people to stay three to four months at a time. On the North Pole of the Earth? Of the moon. Of the moon. Right. So, inflatable habitat, 10 people for a four-month stay. They figure it would take about $10 billion to build it over five years and $2 billion a year to operate it. So, again, very much like Antarctica. Okay. Uh, not to be outdone, the next year, the European Space Agency came up with a, uh, a program from a group of scientists to do one on the South Pole. Hmm. very much the same model. And they went into lots of details about how this would actually work. I mean, it always starts with robots. Yeah, You fly robots to the moon first. Yeah. They survey the area, figure out where the ice is, figure out where the real sunny spots are. Uh, the most popular crater for this right now is a crater called Shackleton. There's a Shackleton crater. Isn't that funny? Yeah, that's why I got named that. Yeah. Right? Ice in the bottom of it, but it's got a really high peak on one side of it that's almost continuously in sunshine, like more than 90% of the time. Wow. So you put the solar panels up there to have power, and then you can run the uh, the robots down below. Hmm. But And you brought up the biggest issue, the temperature differential. Yep. How are you going to keep those robots operating in those incredibly cold temperatures? Right. Also, because the moon doesn't have an atmosphere, isn't it susceptible right. to gamma radiation and all sorts of other nasty things that are floating out there in space? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And that's why if we're going to put peoples up there, we have to bury them. We have to put to cover the surface of their habitats with radiation shielding, yeah. which is really about a couple of meters of regolith will do yeah. the job nicely. But, you know, we've put robots up there before, right? The Chinese have one up there right now. Yeah. Uh, we can we can absolutely make that stuff work. It, the hard coal is going to be challenging. And usually you deal with hard coal by using an RTG. The radiothermal generator that we get electricity from also throws off a ton of heat. Yeah. And so you use that to keep your robot warm. Got it. Uh, this is how Curiosity works. Yeah. Most uh, uh, long-range robots and spacecraft do this. It was good enough for Matt Damon. Yeah, good <laughs> enough for you. Uh, I also <laughs> saw a really cool plan to actually use mirrors. So alongside your solar panels up on the rim of the crater where you have sunlight, you have smart mirrors that are constantly moving to keep the robot in light. Wow. So that it's warmed by the sun huh. rather than having to burn down an RTG and all of the complexities that that represents. Yeah. So that's really interesting that you could set up these robots with reflected light or RTGs so they can start exploring that area, figuring out a good spot for the, for the base. Another thing that occurs to me is, uh, you know how we talked about geothermal, which essentially equalizes the temperature between above and below ground? That might yep. actually be a really great technology for, for the moon to equalize temperatures. And there's an interesting question of, is the center of the moon still warm, right? This is stuff we just don't know the answer to. Well, we know there's ice below the surface, right? Yes. So if there's ice below the surface and you're in a particularly hot place, you could cool down by discharging into the heat dissipating heat into the ground below right oh let me yeah i didn't even pick up what you're saying there dude we could build a heat pipe system right. so run a pipe up into the sunshine and down into the cold well exactly and you can actually uh, uh, pump it back and forth yep. although generally you want the heat low and the cold high but you could solve that to do use that temperature differential to your advantage that's what i'm thinking I'm totally with you yep yeah there's a bunch of options there 
by the way, the moon regolith is interesting stuff. If you heat it up enough, it melts. And when it melts, it becomes a kind of ceramic. Ooh. Hard enough that you could make building materials out of it. Wow. So at the simplest level, you can make yourself a nice hard landing service or a roadway just by heating it up huh. and, and traveling over it. And what does it take to get it, to get it out of the ground? It's powder. It's sitting on the surface. You sitting basically on the scoop surface. it up. Yeah. Huh. Uh, part of the, the ESA design it was to, uh, for their, their base was to have an inflatable dome. So that's your pressure vessel. And then have robots bury that dome and fuse regolith around it to create a hard radiation barrier over over top of your habitat. Hmm. Yeah. So all those things are super doable. Hmm. So once you've sort of scouted the area and you figured out where your water's coming from and you've found a place to put people down, you can set all that stuff up, then you can start doing your refueling project. And that's extracting ice, separating it into hydrogen oxygen, cryogenically cooling it, and sending it to where it needs to go. Hmm. And the sending part gets kind of interesting because fuel's heavy. But because you have no atmosphere and you have relatively little gravity, you don't have to use rocket engines to take off from the moon. Yeah. If you're going to, if you want to get efficient, you build yourself essentially a linear accelerator. So imagine a set of tracks that end at a ski jump and you use electricity to accelerate down those tracks until you hit just over two kilometers a second. Mm. When you hit the end of the tracks, you're going to fly up into orbit. That's funny. Because you have no atmosphere. That's right. All you have to do is escape the bounds of gravity and you're off. Just got to move fast enough. And we can do that with electrical acceleration. It'll be easy if you do it with cargo first. Because you got to accelerate more carefully with humans because they crush. Yeah. But that leads us to the next logical project there, which is you start making solar panels up there, flying them off the moon back to geostationary orbit and building space-based power. Space-based power makes a whole lot more sense if you're actually building them on the moon. Yeah, sure it does. There's a whole set of projects around building tugs to fly back and forth from the moon. So what happens if you start building spacecraft that are only used in space? Now, that's only happened once, right? That's the lunar lander. Yeah. The lunar lander is the only vehicle ever built to only fly in space. Hmm. But if we were going to build a tug, not even meant for landing, literally just a, a, a ship designed to grab those uh, those fuel tanks or those solar panels as they get flung up from the moon, mm-hmm. latch onto them and then fly them where they need to go. Mm-hmm. Same for moving people around. They have a different propulsion system. They use solar electric, right? Much more dense uh, power systems. And if you really want to get clever, you'd start powering them from the moon's surface. Because you're collecting all the solar power off the moon's surface anyway, mm-hmm. you can beam it with lasers or microwaves to a ship. Right. Now, I talked about this a bit when we were talking about building a more efficient way to go to Mars. I remember. But you don't have to have your solar panels in orbit to be able to use them as an engine. Sure. You could have them on the moon. Yeah. So imagine flinging a ship at the moon, and as it gets closer to the moon, we fire a laser up to it to either provide it with more power, so you capture that electricity to power your engines, or even as an ablator, so you have an ablation shield in front, and you superheat that, and when it superheats, it shoots a, ga- a jet out to slow you down. It slows it down, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even just if you're just using solar panels, but we can use reflectors to concentrate more light onto your solar panels, you're going to generate more electricity. Mm. Mm. So we start to get to this idea of external engines, essentially. Engines mounted on the moon, engines mounted in orbit that can power multiple ships. Yeah. So instead of putting an engine on every ship or big engines on every ship, 
You just stick with little ones on the ship and you use a shared engine for everything else. Well, and it makes sense on the moon where there isn't so much gravity and there isn't an atmosphere to get in the way. And there isn't so much atmosphere. Yeah. So you don't have all those blockers. It gets a lot more efficient yeah, to work sure with. Yeah, sure does. Let me throw one other company you've heard of that's suddenly into this game as well, Blue Origin. Oh, Blue Origin. We talked about them way back in the first space show, I think. Yeah, that's Jeff Bezos' company, and they had a good year. You know, they flew their new Shepard rocket. They're about ready to go with that. They proposed the new Glenn. Uh, even more importantly, and I mentioned this in the in the Space in 2017 show, their first BE-4, that's their methane liquid oxygen engine that Lockheed Martin wants to use for their new Vulcan rocket. Yeah. They built the first three. They're going into testing right now. It's a real rocket. Wow. But in the middle of all of that, they dropped a seven-page white paper on NASA. I would love to get my hands on this paper. Huh. That proposes that Blue Origin would like to do cargo duty to the moon. Wow. They have a design they call Blue Moon, specifically for flying to and from the Shackleton Crater with a 10,000-pound payload. Wow. So a five-metric-ton payload to the surface of the moon. They want an opportunity to bid on a contract to do 5,000 metric tons to the moon on demand. Mm, Interesting. Isn't that interesting? It is. I'd like to see some of this stuff come to fruition. Well, yeah, because, uh, you know, at the simplest level, it's, and I I went through these different things. We need to know more about the moon. It's useful for us to know more about the moon. Yeah. So building a base on the moon so the humans can actually operate on it would be useful. Uh, We can do this fuel extraction and so forth. But everything I've described to you so far, you could easily do with robots. Yeah. Yeah. Like why send people? Right. Let me give you two reasons. The first is human health in space. So one of the things that's come out of the International Space Station's trials with humans is that humans don't do well in free fall. That's right. And now a lot of things do work for humans do work in space. Like you can still eat, right? All peristaltic systems, yeah. your blood pumping, digestion, so forth works. One thing that doesn't work is burping. Burping. What happens inside your stomach is the gas builds up, but the food's all around it. Yeah. Right. So if you burp in space, it tends to be vomit. Ah, It takes the food with it. Uh. Although apparently a group of astronauts have figured out if the moment you need to burp, you accelerate yourself, you push off of the wall. That causes all the food in your stomach to fall to the bottom so you can get the gas out. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Yeah. How clever is that? There's something to practice. If you get it wrong, you puke (laughs) in zero G, which is a problem. Yeah, You'd be collecting vomit drops all day. (laughs) <laughs> but there's one, there's a more, well, the burping thing is fun. Let's talk about the serious thing. Yeah. One other human function yeah. that exists that seems to need gravity is the circulation of cerebral spinal fluid. Oh, that's not what I thought you were going to say. Okay. <laughs> what were you thinking? Well, about? I was thinking about the other opposite of burping, you know? Yes. Yeah. Well, that actually works as long as you have a fan in the right place. Okay. And yes, the stuff literally hits the fan. All right. And I and, and if you don't if you think that's gross, you should see what the Apollo astronauts had to do. No, I'd rather not. Let's move on. Let's move on. Cerebral spinal fluid is fluid that's in your spine, and it's what your brain sits in. Right. And it appears to not have any pumping or peristaltic systems at all. Hmm. It depends on your movement and gravity to keep that fluid circulating. Huh. So one of one of the biggest issues that astronauts have is their eyesight. 
shortly after you get onto the space station, within a few weeks, your eyes start to change shape. And the issue is the cerebral spinal fluid is not being pulled into your spine. So it actually tends to pile up in your brain case and it presses against your eyes. Oh. And so you will see virtually every astronaut wears glasses on the space station. And you would think, because they're astronauts, they must have perfect eyesight. Many of these guys were fighter pilots right. and things. And it's because their eyesight is ruined and often permanently ruined wow. by being in free fall for an extended period of time. It's one of the one of the many reasons for the six-month limit on being on the space station. So by contrast, being on the moon isn't free fall, it's low gravity. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. We really need to know what happens to people on the moon. Well, and it, you know, the big argument here is if we're going to go to Mars, there's lots of evidence to show we can't do it in free fall. Yeah. We need to build a spacecraft that has a big rotating centrifuge yeah. to provide enough gravity to keep you healthy. Yeah. The question is, how big and how fast does it need to rotate? Because if it needs to be 1G, right, Earth gravity... Hmm. That's extremely difficult to do. Yeah. That's a very big rotating mass rotating relatively fast. Yep. What if one six G is enough? Yeah. We don't know the answer to that. Right. Is a six G enough to keep you healthy for an extended and I'm talking about years. Right. Right. Scott Kelly just did a over just over a year ago, a year on the space station. Yeah. He went up with perfect eyesight. A year later, his eyesight's still not corrected. Wow. Wow. This is a not a small issue. And it's not the only thing that cerebral spinal fluid does. Cerebral spinal fluid is also the mechanism by which waste products are taken out of neurons oh. and cleaned up. Oh, geez. So the, there's a significant consideration here that being an extended free fall more than six months actually damages your brain. Wow. So we really do need to understand what 1.6G will do for us. Can it keep us healthy? Because the Mars is one third G. If we're actually going to live there, a third of a G better be enough. Right. So wouldn't it be useful to collect long-term health data in 1.6G? That's very, very astute. Right. It's an important part of the equation when you talk about humans. Probably the most important part of the equation. I mean, that would determine whether or not we're going to go to Mars and uh, how we're going to go. Exactly. Or we have to come up with other solutions. Right. And I'm not saying there aren't other solutions, nope. right? We are experimenting with other ways to to keep bodies accelerated, to to create the scenarios by which we can be healthy in it. Yeah. You know, would it make sense if I could make a little tiny pump that I could implant in the base of your skull to keep your cerebral spinal fluid moving? Right. Would that be worth it? It's like, if you want to live in space, well, we have to do this little surgery. That assumes that that's the only problem, right? I mean, the well, the we thing know is, there's more problems than that. Yeah, the thing is, the the body is really intelligent, and we have millions of years of evolution to fine tune uh, it to the environment, and that may be one of thousands of hacks that needs to be done. And where do you stop? You know, right? It, there may be a cascade effect if you do that without. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's sort of the. Yep. Hmm. It, we don't know all of the things. We've learned a bunch of things, yep. to, enough to show that it's in our best interest to figure out how to solve gravity yeah. in one way or the other. And experimentation on the moon makes a lot of sense for all of that. Yes. Yes, it does. That we could do that there. And if, if look, if 1.6G is enough, if humans can be healthy in an extended period, they're probably still going to need exercise to maintain their muscles, but not as much. 
And, you know, but the main thing is if their eyesight can be maintained, if that fluid is circulating properly so that they can basically be healthy, it's a heck of a lot easier to build a centrifuge-based spacecraft if I only have to put out a sixth of a G. Yeah. Right? Wow. But I, the only way for me to prove that is to have somebody in a sixth of G for an extended period of time. It'll take a while to prove that out. Wow, this is blowing my mind. Is, is there anything else that we need to talk about when we were thinking about moon bases? So I talked about four factors for why we need to go back to the moon. Yeah. One was to explore it more thoroughly because yeah. we don't know everything, a, a lot of what's going on right. out there. Uh, to make fuel and manufacturing, which is ultimately making us into a spacefaring race, yeah. and to understand how we function there. Right. But we could also do some fairly unique science up there. There's a, there's a pretty strong argument for if you just dug a trench in the lunar soil several meters deep, you should be able to see multi-billion-year-old ground in there. Wow. So from a lunar geology point of view, once you can have a human actually observing that in detail, I think we'd learn a lot. You know, there's only been one scientist on the moon. It was Harrison Schmidt. And he did more science in the three days that he was up there than everybody else combined. There's pretty hard to get better results than to actually have someone up there when it comes to finding data. You know, what occurs to me is that not only is it important for studying space and the moon, but it, but studying Earth. I mean, how far down would you have to dig to get stuff that's relatively close to the surface on the moon? Well, nowhere near as far, yeah. right? You're absolutely right. So it's interesting. We're understanding the materials that are on the moon are the same materials on the Earth, but we're dealing with a cooler, smaller body. We could learn a lot more in, in the geology point of view. Yeah. But on the far side of the moon, don't call it the dark side because it gets light, yeah. but the far side of the moon, right. we could build radio telescopes there or that are protected from the noise of the Earth. Huh. And you could build them right on the surface because there's no atmosphere to interfere with. Mm -hmm. You could actually put a, create a roll-out radio telescope. So imagine a robot rolling across the surface of the moon, fusing the soil to create a flat surface, and putting down the radio uh, antennas to make them kilometers long right. so that we could peer deep, deep into the universe from the far side of the moon. Well, we have some pretty good telescopes up there now, don't we? We do, but as long as they have to be made in to fly, they have to be made small. Mm. As soon as you can build it on the moon, you can build it really big. Wow. So it's, it's interesting to think about what the far side of the moon could do for observation. Uh, do you remember the LIGO sensor? The, the, that, that was just the past couple of years. Uh, we've now detected gravity waves. Yeah, that's right. And that's a brand new measurement. That's a brand new sense. Yep. Humans got a new sense. Yep. We can now sense the fluctuations of gravity of the universe. Yeah. If you wanted to build a super LIGO, a really powerful one, the far side of the moon is a great place to build it. Yeah. Very cool. So that's why I think we should have a base on the moon, buddy. Maybe two. Maybe several. I'm with you. I would go there. I don't know if I would go to Mars, but I would go to the moon. That sounds fun to me. Because it's three days there, spend a couple of weeks in the hotel, enjoy your low gravity, you know, check out some stuff, and then go home. I want to know when the Dev Intersection Conference is coming to the moon. <laughs> I'd do it in a second, but I don't think it's going to be this week. <laughs> All right. Well, that's great stuff, Richard. And it's always good talking to you. And this was a particularly fun one for me. Awesome. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Transmit a band by the FCC.